As I was beginning to align the ideas of modernist travel and cosmopolitanism and the interwar and mid-century work of the British writer Rebecca West, who was born Cicely Isabel Fairfield in 1892, it seemed that West's self-avowed commitment in the period to an international ideal made her a strong candidate for the label critical cosmopolitan. Rebecca Welkowitz applies this term to the experience and strategies of West's near contemporaries, Joyce, Conrad and Wolfe, for whom the more familiar critical paradigm of the modernist as exile has proved insufficient in accounting for their transnational thinking. Rather, Welkowitz argues, their propensity to think extranationally is characterised by stylistic reflexivity. They emphasise the conditions of limited or suspended agency, and they ask us to consider how conceptions of belonging are bound up in the production, classification and reception of literary narratives. So I wondered, might West be placed among those critical cosmopolitans, given her incisive treatment of the grand narratives of imperialism and male supremacy, and the reflexivity that accompanies the genre-defying quality of her work? Her status as a public literary figure in the 30s and 40s allowed her to write about her travels to great commercial success, and her travel writings were composed with a singular attention to the political and personal affiliations that rose from her journeys. It was with, one, it was with some consternation, then, that I discovered... Not only did West distance herself very firmly from what was then a largely pejorative label, she dismissed the Italian writer and ultranationalist Gabriele D'Annunzio as that queer, scattered thing, a cosmopolitan, <laughs> but also the partisan attachments and strong nationalism registered in her work seemed to render it resistant to any broadly conceived allegiance of a world community of human beings. What then does Rebecca West bring to an investigation of cosmopolitanism in mid-century literary culture? I want to argue that it's not in spite of, but because of West's partisan national allegiances and the textual expressions of these, that her travel writing generates a cosmopolitics useful to discussions and contestations of contemporary cosmopolitanism. Specifically, West's cosmopolitics turns on the idea of hospitality, which has become familiar in assessments of cosmopolitanism as a political and ethical endeavour, particularly through the writing of Kant and Derrida. It's more than 20 years since Martha Nussbaum invoked the ancient Stoic ideal to insist that we give our first allegiance to no mere form of government but the moral community made up by the humanity of all human beings. Her perspective has since been supplanted by an emphasis on the plurality of cosmopolitanisms and the validity and value of localised attachments. Take, for example, Kwame Anthony Appiah's cosmopolitan patriot and Homi Baba's vernacular cosmopolitanism. Corresponding to the trend towards an affective and rooted cosmopolitics, which both exceeds and capitulates to national boundaries, is an insight broadcast loudly in West's travel literature, which is no less powerful for its self-evidence. Effective transnational engagement is brought into being through actual exchanges of hospitality, and these cultural encounters are each entirely particular and must be negotiated as such in a dynamic and dialogic fashion. This construction supersedes the project that Nussbaum identifies to enter into a relationship with all humanity simultaneously. In the literary expression of such a cosmopolitics of hospitality, there are some obvious problems. On either side, two differently localised subjects are required to adapt their understanding of what transnational engagement might mean, transforming the exchange in its enactment so that no encounter can be applied to a general law. Additionally, any instance of hospitality is structured around an asymmetry which demands one side be the host, situated, in possession, at home, and the other a guest, foreign, supplicant, and dispossessed. Derrida's helpful here. His deconstructive analysis of hospitality focuses on the way that hospitality is parasitised by its opposite, an etymologically connected meaning, hostility. He highlights the self-limiting conditionality and the law of hospitality, in the necessity that the host 
maintains sovereignty over his or her space. West's travel literature engages with these pitfalls and potentials of hospitality in its thinking beyond the nation and its anticipation and dramatisation of the double bind posited by Derrida, who finds absolute hospitality, absolute hospitality to be imperative, but also impossible. West's hybrid forms of travel writing and her manifold engagements with the evolving conditions of mid-century hospitality, which notably included Britain's responses to the flux of war refugees and stateless people, reflect a broad ethical dilemma in the period, in which calls to protect the integrity of homeland and national values were tempered by responsibility towards displaced people. The cosmopolitan outlook arising from an ethics of hospitality is based on a series of loyalties that must be particularised and embodied, but, as West's work maintains, these are likely to be inadequate in a world prone to personal and political treachery, which is hospitality's dark inversion. Rebecca West's career-defining work emerged in the 30s and 40s in the fields of travel writing and post-war reportage and was catalyzed by travel in Europe. Her travelogue dealing with late 30s Yugoslavia, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, published in 1941, prompted the critic for the Time magazine of December 8, 1947, on whose front cover West features, to assert she had become indisputably the world's number one woman writer. While West was being fated for her portrayal of the political turbulence and cultural heritage of the Balkans nations, she was struggling over a novel concerned with Russian state and non-state terrorism, set in France at the turn of the 20th century. In 1941, she seemed to give up on the project, but by 1965 had renewed her efforts, and the work was published as The Birds Fall Down in 1966, her last completed novel. These two disparate, roughly mid-century texts, The Travelogue and The Cosmopolitan Novel, each in its attention to conflict between and within nations, and dealing simultaneously with the personal and political realms, constitute what West might have called a guide to a disturbed planet. I'm going to return to this quotation, which forms part of the spurious epigraph to The Birds Fall Down. I think it provides a useful key for thinking about West's cosmopolitan sensibilities and their relation to travel. For now, though, I simply want to call attention to that phrase's concern with agitation or turbulence, its claims to a synoptic global scope, and its loose evocation of the travel guide. Kant's third definitive article for Perpetual Peace in 1795 would have had a special appeal for a liberal international traveller such as West. He writes, The law of world citizenship shall be limited to conditions of universal hospitality. According to Kant, it's the stranger's right to be received in foreign lands without fear of harm, if only for a temporary stay, on account of humanity's common possession of the earth and the contingency of its division into nation-states. This was an attractive ideal for mobile literary cosmopolitans of interwar Britain. More importantly, though, Kant makes hospitality the foundation on which a cosmopolitan political community may be established. Rebecca West's affinity for such thinking runs through the chapter she contributed to Storm Jameson and Philip Noel Baker's Challenge to Death, 1934, whose contributors differed over the advisability of pacifism, but showed a general commitment to collective security through international institutions, institutions such as the League of Nations. Rebecca West's tellingly titled chapter the necessity and grandeur of the international ideal, emphasises the mutual dependency of patriotism and internationalism in the face of increasing hostility from Germany, which had pulled out of the League of Nations in October 1933. In this chapter, West writes, Eminence is not everything a nation needs. There is essential also a society of nations which will compensate by their qualities for her defects, so that these are no heavy reproach to her, which will go on maintaining civilization should she fail, 
during those periods that come to every nation when the national genius is in abeyance. Two years later, West again made a strenuous apology for internationalism in her article Peace, Not Pacifism, in Nash's Palmer, September 1936. She backs, quote, the task of pooling our defences and making an upright and fearless League of Nations that shall suppress aggression, even though it's going to be a heartbreaking task which, was, which must meet failure again and again. West predicts the domino effect of European nations succumbing to Hitler's aggress- aggressive expansion if England were to remain neutral, and she begins with the imagined fall of Yugoslavia. West vigorously underscores the point she made in 1934. Quote, the test of real and valuable nationalism is to avail oneself of the tradition of one's country, and it happens that internationalism is one of the most ancient and firmly established elements in our tradition. But the international ideal is not the same as the cosmopolitan ideal. In thinking along the lines of the nation, West overlooks the burgeoning reality of stateless people, for example. It's in, West tra- it's in West's travelogue, Black Lamb, which is arguably equally propagandist, that a substantial cosmopolitics arises. This guide con- constitutes a compelling path through the conditions of hospitality necessary for peace in a disturbed planet. West first travelled to Yugoslavia in the spring of 1936 at the invitation of the British Council to deliver a series of lectures. She returned twice more to research her book and paid special attention to the legacy of the lately dissolved Ottoman and Habsburg empires and the complicated ethnic tensions which clustered largely around growing Serb supremacy. West's Black Lamb has an unmistakably pro-Serb bias, which may be partially attributed to her host and guide, the charismatic Jewish-Serb patriot and chief of the Belgrade Press Bureau, Stanislav Venava, whom she fictionalises as Constantine. Though West vehemently refuted this accusation of bias, it's clear that her representation of Yugoslavia is mediated by two internationally oriented but nationally minded cultural host institutions, the Serbian Press Bureau and the British Council, each propagating their interests through West in a form of soft power. On the other hand, West is consciously reflective of her political motivations for writing. By the time Black Lamb was published in 1941, Yugoslavia had fallen to the Axis powers and the government had fled into exile and were currently in London. West's epilogue calls on her readers to honour them. She writes, They've come to the West not as unfortunate petitioners, but as benefactors, for the resistance they have made against Germany had given Britain a valuable respite. The force of West's message is carried through the richly realised scenes that punctuate her narrative, in which she seeks the wider transnational significance of the hospitality she receives on the entirely, entirely personal domestic plane. These scenes typically deliver her experiences in grandiose metaphysical terms, which challenge the normative or nationally sanctioned forms of hospitality that govern middle-class approaches back in Britain. In Travnik, in Bosnia, West is entertained at the home of a Bosnian Jewish family, and the mother is defined through her graciousness as a host. Her voice was warm with the desire to do what could be done to comfort our foreigners. When the woman sprinkles perfume into West's hands as a gesture of farewell, West imagines how another guest might have reacted. There sounded in my mind's ear the probable comment of a Western woman. My dear, it was too ghastly. She seized me by the hands and simply drenched them with some most frightful scent. <laughs> West's construction of and distancing from the haughty imaginary guest reveals her anxiety about establishing transnational relationships according to national conventions. This is where the reflexive cosmopolitical value of West's travelogue arises. Her critical assessment of Britain and its relation to the world 
is extrapolated from personal encounters steeped in effect. West explains the transformative power of hospitality. She writes, Travnik had changed its aspect now, as a town does after one has eaten salt in one of its houses. It is no longer something painted on one's retina, it is third dimensional. If, as Bruce Robbins suggests, common humanity is too weak a force to generate sufficient solidarity for world citizenship, West gets beyond this problem, even as she identifies her partisanship and uneven affiliations. Recalling two particular friends in Macedonia, Mehmed and Melitza, West reflects that, having met them, she approaches all strange places differently. She writes, Now, when I go through a town of which I know nothing, a town which appears to be a wasteland of uniform streets, wholly without quality, I look on it in wonder and hope, since it may hold a Mehmed, a Melitza. In differentiating West's official and personal exchanges in Yugoslavia, I mean to tease out the paradox in a neo-Kantian cosmopolitics founded on hospitality. That is, hospitality must be state-sanctioned and enshrined in law, but must also be predicated on a personal ethics. In the case of West, deep transnational loyalties are informed by hospitality, given according to a personally felt ethics. The unevenness of the state versus the individual's welcome of certain people over others was all too acute in mid-century Europe. In the areas of political asylum, Kant's law for perpetual peace finds itself in a grey area. One unsavoury attitude, uh, official attitude to political exile in the early 30s, which throws into relief the nexus of hospitality and internationalism that I've been seeking to trace, is encapsulated in a story in the Times of January 1930. The article concerns the foiling of a conspiracy by anti-fascist Italian revolutionaries living in Paris, to bomb Italy's delegates at a League of Nations meeting in Geneva. The correspondent in Rome writes that news of the arrest has been received here with gratification as a symptom that France has at last received the error of indiscriminate hospitality to Italian furioschiti, political exiles. The hope is expressed that this step may tend to improve Franco-Italian relations. So the phrase indiscriminate hospitality is suggestive. The furioschiti are taken as one body, and through association with their extremist revolutionary compatriots, cast as treacherous guests rather than legitimate asylum seekers. It's worth noting also that the arrest is deemed by the fascist Italian government an opportunity to ease its strained international relationships. An article on the following day brings the same story to Geneva. The correspondent writes, Continued toleration of anti-fascist political exiles in Switzerland is absolutely incompatible with the establishment there of the League. Today it is Italian exiles who are working against the Italian delegation. Tomorrow it may be Syrians who will plot against the French delegates, or the Indians who will conspire against the British delegates, in order to put pressure upon those governments and make worldwide demonstrations. The League of Nations must ever work in an atmosphere of tranquility upon strictly neutral territory, and in complete security of mental liberty. The irony that such a security of mental liberty has denied those Syrians and Indians subject to European imperialism and the Italians compelled into exile, is lost on the reporter, even as the call is made for an international principle of commitment, neutrality and non-aggression. We might recall Derrida's grappling with a theoretical task of establishing a truly universal hospitality in the Kantian cosmopolitan tradition in his discussion of cities of refuge in On Cosmopolitanism and Forgiveness, 1997. Derrida points out that hospitality, whether public or private, is dependent on and controlled by the law and the state police. Apparently here, the law's blind spot regarding the imperial nation's colonial other 
is only compounded by its professed commitment to international relations. But then, as Benedict Anderson has indicated, the establishment of the League of Nations ushered in a time when the legitimate international norm was the nation-state. Against such a backdrop, how could those still emergent nations or stateless people expect fair recognition? How were the unwritten rules of hospitality complicated by such turbulence? These questions lead to my final claim for West's contribution to cosmopolitics of hospitality, which is in her work's troubled apprehension of the asymmetry of the guest-host relationship and of the ever-present potential for hospitality to be betrayed, for the guest to become a parasite, the host to be dispossessed. The figures of the political exile, the terrorist and the tra traitor, haunt West's writings from the mid-century, partly in response to her commissions to report on the Nuremberg trials and other post-war trials dealing with treason. The dynamic of hospitality and treachery is powerfully explored in West's 1966 novel, The Birds Fall Down, which evolved out of a true story she'd heard about Yevno Azef, the notorious leader of the terrorist branch of the Russian Socialist Revolutionary Party at the turn of the 20th century, who happened also to be an agent provocateur and a spy for the Russian Imperial Secret Police. In West's novel, this man is known as Kamensky and leads a double life as secretary for a Russian count, Nikolai Diakonov, who's been exiled by the Tsar but remains fiercely loyal to the imperial regime. The narrative develops around Kamensky's complicated personal betrayal of the count and of the revolutionaries whom he purports to lead. Kamensky is uncovered by the count's granddaughter, Laura, who colludes in his assassination by Chubinov, a revolutionary who manages somehow to maintain lo loyalty both to his party and to his political enemy, but old benefactor and friend, Count Nikolai. This all unfolds in a preeminently cosmopolitan setting. The revelation of Kamensky's betrayals takes place over more than 100 pages in a train carriage moving through France. And there's more to be said about the cosmopolitanism and the setting of the novel, but I don't think there's time here. What's important in West's fictionalisation of this prodigious story is her choice to structure the larger national conspiracies of state and non-state terror around intimate domestic scenes in which the niceties or the perversion of hospitality loom large. Laura's immediate horror on hearing of Kamensky's treachery is manifest in the ways it's intruded on home life. She thinks it was terrible that he had used the same forks and spoons, eaten off the same plates and drunk out of the same glasses as the Diakonov family. Superimposed over these scenes is West's critique of the Hegelian dialectic which is the scheme used by Kamensky to justify his behaviour. He says, Why should we not apply the dialectic process to actions as well as to ideas? Why not follow one deed by its opposite? Why not go gloriously further and serve one way of life and then its enemy? The outrage of this system is figured by West in the novel's motif, reflected in the title, of birds being shot down for sport. Count Nikolai describes the experience of a woodcock shoot he used to enjoy in Russia. A system perfect in itself and exquisitely ingenious, is destroyed at the very moment when it is implementing its perfection by another system. Moving towards a conclusion, then. West does not achieve a planetary perspective in her guides. But then, a cosmopolitics of hospitality need not require a horizontal view of world citizenship. In his survey of actually existing cosmopolitanism, Bruce Robbins implies the near impossibility of reaching a final word in advancing any comprehensive mode of cosmopolitanism. But, he says, it is something to bring to light the thousand gross and subtle ways in which we are told every day that people outside our borders are too distant to matter. West's travel literature erodes something of the distance, and the figure of disturbance is helpful here. 
forging personal alliances and loyalties on patriotic national levels, West's literal and imagined travel gives her a chance to test transnational loyalties built out of moments of hospitality. The epigraph to The Birds Fall Down picks out the motif I've just described of the bird shoots come dialectical process in a short verse titled Guide to a Disturbed Planet by Conway Power. And here's a minor treachery on West's part because Conway Power is a pseudonym of the author herself. The verse begins, We're all bowmen in this place. The pattern of the birds against the sky are arrows over print, and then they die. As guides to a disturbed planet, Black Lamb and the Birds Fall Down present loyalties and bodies in a state of mobility, against which patterns citizenship and identity must be constantly negotiated anew. Though West's cosmopolitics delivers a code for establishing more hopeful patterns of relation, and not least textually, the overprinting arrows of the poem figure her words on a page, she doesn't let us forget that they also contain the conditions for their own disintegration. <laughs> 